You're listening to The Arts Report, CATR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm Ashley Park. And I'm Jake Clark. And How let's you doing? get right into the arts news. So we have a great interview uh, set up for you guys uh, today. Can you give a bit of a brief foray on who we're looking into? Yeah, we're looking today into Charles Demers, Demers? Uh, his most recent book, Property Values, has been published by Arsenal Pulp Press. And uh, Arsenal Pulp is, they're one of our sort of, we don't do a lot of book review, but I think every book review we've done, uh, like Liquor Less Than the Law, for example, that that was published, oh, was that published by Arsenal? I believe so. Like there's Liquor Less Than the Law was, was it? I don't Arsenal, though, is done. They've done great work with the poetry community, especially in Vancouver. And it's just, they put out some fantastic work. And this is actually, so this is a novel. And it's a novel by uh, a comic, essentially. Charles has actually taught at UBC, to my understanding, in creative writing. And the press release to this begins with something very interesting because it's a quote from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's a great author. And highly recommend looking into the guy. Oh, yeah. Just to let you know, Liquor, Lust, and Law, that is Arsenal. Woo! That is Arsenal. I was correct. Yeah. Boogaloo. Uh, from Mr. Marquez. But the real obsession of the drug traffickers, I'm not going to do a Spanish accent. They're, well, oh, Colombian, please don't. But uh, <laughs> their Freudian obsession has been to buy land, land, evermore land. It is as though they are trying to buy up the entire map with its condors and its rivers the yellow of its gold and the blue of its seas, so that no one can ever move them from where they want to be. Now, that that quote strikes me because the thing about Vancouver, I've lived in Vancouver now for about three years, mm-hmm. and Vancouver is the only city I've been to. I've been to a lot of cities where you can you could probably do a man-on-the-street interview and answer most of the questions off a, rel- off a realtor's exam. Hmm. No, no, I, that, that this this rings true to me, especially uh, the more I think about it, because there's a lot like this is a really interesting thing to me is that real estate is a topic that you can talk about across Vancouver and you can get a response. Right. And that's not that is not, for example, true of Toronto, I would say. Interesting. Because. The thing about Vancouver is that Vancouver is a really unique situation. Vancouver is the third most expensive city in the world to live in, Mm -hmm. uh, behind Hong Kong and Sydney, Australia. And part of that is, a large part of that is the property price, uh, which is very similar in situation to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Like San Francisco, like Vancouver. Vancouver is Canada's San Francisco and LA, I would say. Would that be accurate? Um, I think it depends with LA because LA is such such a large area that you have places that are much more uh, cheaper, just because they're not they're not the right part of town, let's say, right? And there are places that are very expensive, uh, like uh, Highland uh, Hills, for example. Oh yeah, expensive. yeah. LA's LA's got the your urban sprawl problem that well, mm-hmm. we can't we can't they can't build anymore Vancouver. Yeah. Which is why the basement in Vancouver is ahead of the ceiling some other places. But that's a similar problem, I'd say, to San Francisco, where it's a bay backed up against mountains. Also a beautiful city. Also a very Mediterranean-looking city. And Vancouver in the spring really does look Mediterranean. I mean, I said this on the last show, but it's a beautiful sight. And the novel itself is, is set – it's a crime novel. And mm-hmm. it explores urban gentrification, real estate, and gang violence. Mm-hmm. based around the story of, quote, a schlubby suburban renter trying to buy out his ex-father-in-law to keep the only house he's ever called home. 
And because he doesn't have a chance at that, well, you basically get a noir setup. And yeah, you can do that. You can you can keep noir setups going like Western setups. You can put them in a lot of things. Wherever there's this sort of wherever there's a climate of strangeness or this uncanniness in natural life, you can do that. I mean, I think that when we when we were talking about um, that Blue Velvet screening, I think we touched on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you can make a lot of fun out of that too. Like the relationship between comedy and noir is kind of, I would say the analog is screwball comedy which you can do really well in vancouver jason james did that with that burning feeling mm. <laughs> you ever did, did we mention this uh, on viff around viff jason james for viff this past year he's a vancouver-based director and he made a movie called entanglement with thomas middleditch from silicon valley and um he i, I saw that at the rio and I interviewed Mr. James, and Mr. James, I believe his previous venture or his most notable venture was a a film called That Burning Feeling, which is about a real estate agent, I I believe his real estate agent, who he gets that burning feeling, you know, know, when he's, and he has to call all of his Mm ex-partners. And because of that, it sort of undermines this image he has of himself and the two things is about her sex and real estate and that's about as vancouver as you get i would think <laughs> okay may- maybe okay i i know a lot less about one of those things than the other but there you go i'm an autodidact like it or not i'm self-taught mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway it looks like uh property values um as you mentioned touches upon those things it does take in a much more comedic way i know a lot of people think gang violence real estate to be very uh, you know, like, oh, this is very depressing. Serious stuff. But, you know, you can make anything funny. It just depends on how you do it. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot to that. Like, I'm, I, the interesting thing about how comedy works to me is that there is nothing you can't make funny. But that doesn't mean it's equally easy to make anything funny. Mm-hmm. It, From what I can read uh, online, um, it looks like uh, uh, Demers, the author, actually the press right here. Uh, sees that the book is more of a how done it than a who done it. So it's not much of a crime puzzle as it is a farcical heist. So it's more of a heist sort of uh, novel because I believe the premise of the novel is because he wants to, you know, live there and it's too expensive. He fakes a shooting. They, they fake a shooting to drop the property value down. <laughs> but then what that happens is because they faked a shooting, it actually alerts the local gangs in that area. And then they have to do like an entire like, oh no, that was, you know, oh boy. And they have to like figure out how to maneuver. Solve one problem by creating another. That's right. That's that's the classic noir setup. That's something where, um, you know, like there's a great, the greatest example of that that I've ever seen on film, the most archetypical one is Quicksand with Mickey Rooney. Mm-hmm. I think it's Mickey Rooney, yeah. And it, it's a film where these little things, these little acts of desperation, like, he needs money to go on a date, so he steals a couple dollars in the office. In order to get that back, he takes out a loan. In order to cover the loan, he takes jewelry. And it gets on, goes on and on and on, and Peter Laurie's involved, so it gets sleazy. And then just ends up with him nearly being shot by the police. And <laughs> it, and this is Mickey Rooney, too. This is like baby-faced 1940 Mickey Rooney around that. And that is something that drives noir a lot. And I can see that working with a heist. Like, the heist is, is a really shall we say, confined genre. Yeah. But it's something that it's, it's, it, it works because of that. Right. But by that same means, you don't need a lot of heist films. You need noir. Noir is more varied. Mm-hmm. And that's what this seems like to me, is that it seems like, again, this farcical noir, like not quite like uh, Dead Man Wear Plaid or uh, My Favorite Brunette, but somewhere near there, you know. Mm-hmm. That's 
I've, I've watched a lot of, a lot of, a lot, a lot of black and white in my life, you know, <laughs> movie-wise. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, when you think about that, because the housing market, as we're at, yeah, I, I, I wonder, like, just setting something, if it gets to this point, if Vancouver finally becomes a setting and actually plays itself. Right. And I think, I think I told you that I'm really interested in that as, um, um, in, in general, Van- Vancouver as, like, the setting for, yeah. like, stories. And I think it's good that we're having some stories like that. Apparently, with this book, they're even thinking of making it into a movie. There's some screenwriting deals happening from what really? it sees on the internet. And it could be something that's very interesting, like a resurgence of, like, Vancouver as, you know, the place where things happen. Because I think when we talked with, um, I believe it was Mr. Uh, Chapman, Aaron Chapman. He's yeah. the historian. Yes, Aaron Chapman. So, yes, I right. was trying to remember who we were talking to. Yeah, he's a historian, and he does mention that there's so many weird and cool things and wonderful, like, historical, like, almost, like, landmarks and, like, points in time where Vancouver was, like, the place where it happened. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a city. It's one of the cities at the edge of the world, mm-hmm. and it was for a while and for most of its life, I would think. And because of that, like, it, there's this unique sort of composite culture to it, and it's one of those things where – and this is oddly enough like Toronto, so I wonder if it's a Canadian thing or if it's because our analogs to American cities include several of those American cities. Like mm-hmm. I said, you can have Vancouver uh, at certain parts of the year double for any of the large American cities on the West Coast, depending on where you shoot, mm-hmm. I would say. Same thing with Toronto. You can do the Eastern Seaboard and the Midwest with that. That's like the joke where, you know, on film, most American high schools are located in Toronto. <laughs> or or there's the one in Venice Beach but like the that's something i find really interesting because of that and that of course ties into why vancouver doesn't play itself right but uh, to avoid getting too far down that rabbit hole as we know i can like the thing that really struck me about this is that this is a comedy uh, venture and this is not the first time he's done something like this mm-hmm. as comedy in 2013 i believe this is something i came up when i googled them he used jack and the beanstalk for this a, a pantomime a panto mm-hmm. called, about jack and the beanstalk and it's similar themes and his description for this is when he was interviewed was um agitprop works a lot better when it's funny yeah yeah agitprop and people might not know what agitprop is, but it's actually theater that's used to create political awareness, like agitation. Theater or anything. Agitprop, I don't know if it's shorthand for agitation propaganda, but that's what it is mm-hmm. in principle. And whenever I hear that used positively to me, like as, as we're going to discuss later with something like cashless, like I, I don't have a problem with the um, with having – a work about ideas. I don't. Those are your ideas. And that's part of authorship. But the thing that bothers me to a degree about that is that it's it's a spoonful of sugar thing. Right. Helps the medicine go down. And I'm uh, I'm the kind of, again, like I, for me, it's one of the things where if you can't, if you can't stomach the medicine, if the taste is the only thing keeping you from taking the medicine, then... You're, I think that's on you is, is, is one of the things is, is how I've sort of been raised to see this mm-hmm. I would say oh is that him let's find out we may have a guest hello 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 Charlie Charles are, are you on air oh no it dropped 
Charles Friend? Oh, Drat. That's okay. We'll try once Technology more. Technology has failed us again. I hate it when that happens, you know. This is why I'm fairly sure Skynet is not going to be a danger. <laughs> because, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of technological failure at this point. That said, I have an antique Samsung that's pretty working and, that's working and doesn't explode. So, yeah, actually, maybe there's good reason to have faith in it. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe so. We're going to play a few ads while we try to get our uh, guests back on air. Bear with us. Thank you. See you on the other side. On Sunday, May 6th, participate and fundraise in the Vancouver Investors Group Walk for Alzheimer's. It's a fun and family-friendly event that sends a message of inclusion and hope to the estimated 70,000 British Columbians living with dementia and the people who care for them. The Vancouver Walk will take place at Creekside Community Recreation Center at 12 p.m. To learn more about how you can join us and create a movement, visit www.walkforalzheimers.ca. Vancouver, together, we make memories matter. Timber Concerts presents the return of Flemish Eye recording artist Preoccupations on Wednesday, May 9th at the Astoria. Preoccupations are touring in support of their latest album, New Material, which is available now. You can get tickets and more information at PreoccupationsBand.com. Hub Cycling is hosting Bike to Work Week on May 28th to June 1st. Come out and celebrate bike commuting across Metro Vancouver. There will be 45 celebration stations offering free drinks, snacks, bike mechanic services, and great prizes. Along with winning prizes, participants help us work with local leaders to help improve cycling infrastructure in their communities. Check out bikehub.ca for more information. to be on the radio. Christy, you know you can do that at CITR and Discorder, right? What? Yeah, you can get a show or help with live broadcasts and interview people at shows around the city and make ads and PSAs that play during the shows. Wow. Yeah, just email volunteer at CITR.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. I will. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And welcome back to the Arts Report. My name's Ashley Park. And I'm Jake Clark. And we have the author on the line with us. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. We were talking a little bit about your uh, book, Property Values, and we are really excited to uh, to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, how did you get to writing Property Values in the first place? Um, yeah, the, the idea was kind of uh, the premise sort of came first. I I thought uh, that it would be really funny uh, if, you know, as as an attempt to be able to stay in the neighborhood where where they grew up, um, these guys were to uh, stage a drive-by shooting on on the property to drive the values down. And if somehow the fake gang that they put together for those purposes uh, got drawn into an actual... uh, 
gang rivalry. And so working out the story of the novel, the basic kind of structure uh, of the book, uh, was basically a question of how, how could I sort of make that premise uh, come to life in a, in a plausible plausible way. So, yeah, essentially we follow these, um, these three friends living in Coquitlam and uh, a crime writer uh, for the local newspaper who's sort of uh, piecing together what's going on from the outside. And uh, essentially it's just a, a case of bad decisions leading to worse decisions, uh, leading ultimately to, uh, you know, a need to uh, uh, sort of get their heads out of the quicksand. Ah, well, you mentioned quicksand. Like we were actually talking about the Mickey Rooney movie, the sort of noir film, sort of prototypical in that kind of setup. Is this in many? Is this does this sort of draw from the tradition of film noir, sort of crime fiction? You know, like the press release mentions a, a fascination with gangsters and Al Capone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, you know it's satirical noir, so I think. Uh, you know, the the world is, uh, I, I tried to be as, you know, realistic as a comic novel would allow in terms of representations of the sort of gang world and the, and the, at the sort of actual criminal element in the story. Um, but, you know, it is a fish out of water uh, tale, basically. It's, it's these three guys who really aren't gangsters finding themselves pushed by the craziness of the lower mainland real estate market into having uh, to behave like gangsters. And so, um, you know, it definitely draws on uh, noir elements. And uh, I got a lot of uh, help from my friend uh, Sam Weeb. Uh, uh, you know, I got his sort of uh, editorial input um, while I was writing the book. And Sam definitely writes very gritty, serious noir um, but I did also try to write something that would hopefully be fun and funny. I, I basically, I kind of set out to write the, the great Burquitlam crime novel. <laughs> uh, and uh, so hopefully that's uh, what I've wrought. That's, that's interesting because we, we were speaking to Aaron Chapman about the crime history of Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. And it's a very rich sort of history. A lot of the city's history is very rich, but that's especially sort of Absolutely, and and Aaron's Aaron's book, The Last Gang in Town, uh, which came out from the same publisher as, as uh, Property Values, um, you know, his book as well, kind of uh, was one of the texts that really helped me along the way, um, thinking through this story because, essentially, what what Aaron's uh, sort of dive into the crime history of uh, East Vancouver. Uh, helped to illustrate was just how easily groups of violent young men um, kind of working through their teenage angst or young adulthood uh, because of the drug economy, because of, you know, the various ways the Vancouver economy works, those guys find themselves going very easily from like group of friends to organized gang. And so I kind of wanted to take that. that yeah, take that to uh, to one level more absurd, where you have three guys who really aren't violent or hooligans, uh, but they somehow get they somehow get drawn into it. Sounds kind of like a city slickers kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, well, any any all I'm trying to do is get my hands on Curly's goal. Now I got I got a question for you, and this is so earlier on we mentioned Jason James, who made a film that burning feeling which is about sex and real estate. It's one of the most Vancouver things I've ever seen. And there's also right. uh, Shaul Ezer, who he's a playwright, 
and he's done a trilogy of films about Can- uh, plays about Canadian cities. And the first is The Concierge of Vancouver, which features um, a character who rents out the apartments of absentee landlords to the homeless. And this this all sort of comes together for me for a sort of a genre where Vancouver is playing itself. And this seems to be this is also very true of property values. And I yeah. was wondering if you if you've seen other examples of this is it would you would you have a name for this is this a kind of movement or a genre well sam who i mentioned earlier sam weeb um actually has indicated that there might be something emerging here on the west coast that he calls property noir and it's actually you know he he has just edited uh, a book of uh, short crime fiction from various writers uh, set in Vancouver. It's the Vancouver Noir, uh, you know, part of that series of international noir anthologies. And uh, he said that he, you know, it's such a pervasive, uh, it's such a pervasive obsession um, uh, in Vancouver that uh, people really, um, you know, it's showing up in, in all kinds of writing. So, yeah, Sam thinks it should be called property noir. Um, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's the main driver of the economy when you think of Vancouver. And so in a lot of ways, it makes sense that it would uh, present itself, you know, as saliently as, you know, waterfront labor in the old crime fiction or um yeah. uh you know other types of uh, other types of kind of uh economic activity that uh criminal enterprise uh spins out of now I, because this is so linked to noir i do want to ask this a lot of people say film noir is a dead genre and it is arguably so as much as the western or the screwball comedy in that we know its conventions better than the examples but there's still very living examples there's revisionist westerns there's neo noir there's there's peter bogdanovich's screwball comedies they still continue to appear what to you is essential for noir to survive to be relevant in a scene or in a culture that's a really good question i mean i think um Noir really arises kind of, in, and, and I think um, uh, practitioners like Ian Rankin, uh, all the way to sort of theorists like Mike Davis, have basically pointed out right. that, um, yeah, noir, noir basically sort of crops up in opposition to any place that is undergoing a kind of sanitization. And uh, people sort of cling to the idea of the the seamy and scary and unpredictable uh, underworld just as the sort of overworld is reaching its highest level of kind of sanitation and conformity. And, of course, uh, noir really does emerge in, um, you know, as a, as a full-fledged genre, it, you know, after World War II uh, in this, in the midst of this, you know, so-called return to normalcy or prosperity, um, you know, that that seems to be just the moment when people want these stories about, you know, down and out boxers throwing fights or loan sharks. The the setup with Robert Ryan, right? Yeah. That's a great movie, man. Like, that's, that's, man, that's, sorry, sorry, I I have that movie on DVD. That's, no. Yeah, That's so I mean, like, I, and and I think Vancouver is absolutely a city that, uh, in that way, is going through this, um, you know, the the mani pediization of a whole city, um, you know, this town that was 
a kind of, um, you know, shit-kicking uh, resource outpost uh, until the 80s, um, has always had this very unique crime life because it's, you know, it's the one major North American port city where the mafia is never a particularly big presence. Uh, it's It's a world where the kind of the organized crime of the Atlantic world, but also of the Pacific world, are both present. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah. it's oh, a yeah. city where the typical kind of racial segregation of criminal life uh, really hasn't been either maintained or, in a way, even possible. And so, you know, I think Vancouver's got this fascinating crime history and fascinating crime present. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it really runs against the grain of a lot of uh, condo advertising copy. And so I think uh, people gravitate towards it as just any kind of story that feels different from what's being uh, uh, shoved down our throats. Yeah, well, that's, that's a hell of a point to make. So if you can, check out property values. Are you doing anything else? Anything else? Any pantomimes we can check out? Um, actually, it uh, looks like the next big project that I'll be working on uh, writing-wise will be um, uh, a screenplay adaptation of Property Values. So uh, P- uh, that will be the next big thing that I kind of dive into and, and trying to think the story through uh, in a different format. I'll see if you can get Ryan Reynolds. Uh, close, Ryan Knighton, the uh, Vancouver screenwriter. He and I will be writing... And uh, you know Ryan, Ryan's pretty good friends with Ryan Reynolds, so yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to rope him in, get him off that sinking Deadpool ship. How many Canadian and, uh, Ryans are in the film industry? Good lord! Okay. Uh, I, there are uh, Ryan uh, dominates the uh, my <laughs> iPhone contact list like no other name. There's just uh, there is a there was a huge proliferation over the course of the '70s and '80s, and it's we're like, really only like, dealing now with the fallout of the Ryan boom like Justin's in the 90s exactly well okay so that was so we'll check out property values be on the lookout for the film I, I, I I'd be stoked for it Charles it's it's a pleasure to have you thank you so much for appearing on the show thanks for having me cheers cheers and now we'll have a few uh, messages and get right to some great reviews Boogaloo. Hey bro, I was kind of thinking that I might want to write like stuff for a magazine, dude. You know you can do that at CITR and Discord, right? What? Yeah, you can review live shows where you get in for free, or music and books and stuff that's coming out, or do write-ups on artists and local issues for Discord or magazine. That's sick, bro. Yeah, just email volunteer at CITR.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. Dude, I totally will. initiatives to give more voice to local women artists and musicians. Mixtapes is a Vancouver-based biannual mixtape featuring women-identified musicians and sound artists from the Pacific Northwest. The spring 2018 edition will be coming out on May 10th, with all proceeds going to the Downtown Eastside Women's Shelter. Women-identified artists are invited to send their submissions to btchtapes at gmail.com. The release fundraiser will be held on May 10th at the Redgate Review Stage, featuring artists selected for this edition of the cassette.
You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low-barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine even when you don't have change. And welcome back to our show. This is the Arts Report. And I'm Jake Clark. I'm Ashley Park. And this is the Unceded Mexican Territory in Vancouver, CHA Radio 101.9 FM. How's that for a deconstructed opener? How do you manage to put all the consonants in there? I can barely manage that at normal speed. <laughs> I I had to do a lot of like pronunciation, like, you know, work so I wouldn't get ridiculed. <laughs> you know Imperialism. So, well, <laughs> yeah. Ain't that a segue? Let's talk about it. Cashless. So Ooh. Um, Cashless is a play. It's currently on at the Havana. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a soft spot for the Havana because it's the first place where I ever saw a show for this show. And mm-hmm. because, for the Arts Report. Yeah, for when, so it's the first place I saw a show when I was living in, but when I came to Vancouver to live. I will make this with a caveat. The Havana is, in terms of programming, it is not a consistent favorite. I, I would say, like, w- there. Are, Do you think they're very experimental with what they choose? I, I, they've they've certainly had some interesting choices. Twenty one mm-hmm. pickup was uh, fifty two pickup was interesting. Sorry, um, the uh, the the hunger was it about the witches and eating disorders? That was actually quite interesting. Mm-hmm. That that one I liked. I, I, the writer of that one, uh, we talked afterwards. It was that was a couple of years ago actually, and then there is Cashless, which is the first play I've seen at the Havana in a while. Now. The thing we were talking about before is real estate. Yeah. And you know how I said that there was a certain degree of real estate literacy in Vancouver that wasn't really matched by other cities in my experience? Well, cashless is about finance. Mm-hmm. In Primarily speaking, that's not all it's about. In fact, that's very little of what it's practically about. But The backdrop is finance. Not even. Not the, even. The assumed grasp of finance is pretty great. There's a lot of content in this about finance. And I believe that – and if the playwright Nathan Narusis worked in finance, I wouldn't be at all surprised. There's a lot of terms about this. Mm-hmm. Now, Cashless is a play about the possibility – it's a speculative future play, speculative – technically science fiction, but uh, speculative – play about the disappearance of hard currency and its mm. impact on individual liberty. We're talking bitcoins. No, we're, well, yeah, they only mention cryptocurrencies. The main topic of this is the gold standard. Now, right. before I say anything else, I want to note the that in the program there is some other selected sources of inspiration. Cyrano, Michael Valentine Smith, J- Swoop, Jubilee Hershaw, Andre Taganov, Diggs Clavine, Dr. Thomas Stockton, Dr. Robert Neville, 1971, Jorn Byrne, D. Fens, Hugh Hoyland, Quint slash Brody slash Hooper, Will Kane, D. D. Harriman, Pika Aparana, and Coro 2, Abby Willers, Jur 8, Tony Montana, and last but not least, Lazarus Long. So if you were counting that there's a reference in there to Edmund Ross and Cyrano de Bergerac to two characters, at least from Stranger in a Strange Land by um, Robert E. Heinlein, uh, Thomas Stockton from Ibsen's Enemy of the People, Robert Neville from the original I Am Legend, uh, Defense, which is Michael Douglas's character in Falling Down, uh, Quint Brody and Hooper is a tripartite protagonist of Jaws, uh, D.D. Uh, oh no, sorry, uh, Eddie Willers is from Atlas Shrugged, mm is uh, Dagny Taggart sort of loyal um, 
I believe, loyal sort of assistant, I would say. Uh, and Tony, Mon- Tony Montana. We know Tony Montana. Yeah. Two uh, cockroaches want to play rough? Okay, I'm reloading! I apologize for those listening on headphones. And Lazarus Long is uh, the... You gotta Im- warn me, a- my, my Another <laughs> immortal, is an immortal Heinlein protagonist as well. Now, so I read this going in, and I, it was all right up to a point, but you see, here's the thing. When there's an Atlas Shrugged reference... I, Rand. I become, yes. Mm-hmm. When there's an Ayn Rand reference, I in general become cautious. That's not necessarily a value judgment, because I think you can take something of value... From the works of Ayn Rand, not 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 necessarily straightforward with objectivist philosophy, which I don't really agree with on most things, but I have read them, and I think they're widely proliferated enough that they need that understanding some of them is at least viable. Atlas Shrugged is far and away the worst example of both her fiction and of her writing in 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 action. So that's what I thought of going into this. Right, Cashless is is better than that. But this is so cashless uh, centers around one character named Richard Sanborn, and Richard is a financial planner uh, who has grand ambitions. Now, Richard as a character is also a uh, amateur boxer, mm-hmm. very intelligent, uh, has a well also does judo. Um, okay, is consistently right on pretty much every topic has a great deal of time to expound upon this is conti- is is referred to as out of his time by many either he should have born been born 200 years ago or 50 years ahead and people this is if what i'm getting at he is mary sue is all hell yeah he sounds kind of unsufferable like very not insufferable me, insufferable i really would have wanted to see this with you because you walked out of King Charles III. I did. This is a better political play than King Charles III. Yeah. Because at least this is focused. Okay. But do you think I would have walked out still? Pro- There's no intermission. Oh, you're right. I would have so, been like, oh, I got to use the washroom. This is 90 minutes. Just, this like, is not – this feels longer than it is, but it's not a ter- – again, I'm grading this one – on a curve because I was not angry at this play. I didn't dislike this play. I yeah. disagreed with it on a few points. And what were those points? So this is an ideological play. The premise of this is that when paper money disappears yeah. and that that this will lead to a reduction in liberty because all currency will be controlled by government and that the need to pay on card or phone will allow restrictions on it. And there's a gr- they go into this in great detail. They support yeah. their argument very well. Are there straw men, you say? Uh, yes. Yes, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a dedicated... Again, this is the Randian element here. Characters speak in ideology and exposition. And it's... it. I, I don't know how this was directed, but I, a lot of writers write without... Don't use enough contractions when they write plays. And I think they assume that actors are going to say the lines more naturally. But that doesn't always happen. And when that doesn't happen, it's the dialogue equivalent of not blinking when you speak. I do not understand, Jake. Not even that. It's, yeah. I do not understand that concept. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? Like, that is... It's a very cultivated manner of speaking. Yeah. That is not how you speak when you're not prepared. To do you do think so. that um, the playwright, and this is me, you know, being devil's advocate or playwright's advocate, do you think the playwright did that on purpose so that people will listen because it sounds very unnatural? That is possible. That that is that is highly possible. Um, the thing is that 
it's it's done across the board. Mm-hmm. Like there are scenes of the the two, the two of the female characters in this. That would be um, the main character. Oh, uh, Richard Sa- Richard's played by Hans Potter, by the way. Uh, Jess Garcia as his girlfriend Faith and Rexidio as her friend Nina are talking. Mm-hmm. And so this is the thing. There was th- this is a scene where the two characters. So this is the scene where you got. Uh, a main character who everyone says is awesome, Richard, and who who has a often drawn out manner of speaking. Not not necessarily yes, well drawn out in this case. And there are female characters who sit around talking about how awesome he is while discussing getting banged and drinking red wine. That is almost exactly a description of about twenty minutes of the room. This occurs to me because as you, I have a middling obsession with the room, but it was it was something that I couldn't really avoid. It, this resoundingly fails the Bechdel test, by the way. Just yeah, it just sounds just sound like the the women are used to prop up his ideas, right? Yeah, um, the the the, the t- they talk about him a lot, uh, and the characters are pretty one note. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to say that, and that is because with the possible exception of the character of. Nina, they're all political straw men to a degree. Yeah, they're just there to represent an idea, nothing more. Pretty much. Basically, it's like, hey, this this type of person you hate. Uh, yeah. That it says this idea. Yes. Like, you know, like people go, oh, liberals, Shakespeare. Oh, conservatives, Shakespeare. Actually, one thing I will say about this, it's it wouldn't be easy to tar any of the characters in this with a concrete political ideology beyond reactions to a certain variety of libertarianism. Interesting. Which is... To me, that that's a good thing because one, it is bizarrely less divisive in practice. It's a lot more nebulous. Okay. And it, another thing too is that it a large part of this play, a lot of the do- dialogue in this is between two libertarians. That's Richard and his friend Dak, played by Daniel Frost. Mm-hmm. Now, Dak, for the record, is what I'd say um, the Chester Browns and Doug Stanhopes of the world see people like me as, because Dak is a um, uh, a, a functional drunk, um, obsessed with sex, and who basically proposes all decisions be made along those, basically a combination of nymphomania and rule of funny, which is has been the dis- a takeaway from a lot of the things I've said in the past, mostly because, honestly, it's, it's funnier. I haven't said a lot of serious things. Frankly, you could yeah, you could debate whether or not this is serious right now. But he's also libertarian. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what's it? What's the differing point of view between culture these two? versus fisc cultural libertarianism versus fiscal libertarianism? All right. Is basically the issue. They do go at it, and between these characters, this is, in my opinion, the most redeeming aspect of the play because this reminds me of. So I'm currently reading some Chester Brown. I'm currently reading Paying for It, and. In in there, there's a very specific manner of dialogue while Chester Brown is talking to his friends Seth and Joe Matt, mm-hmm. and it's it reminded me of this. Except the dialogue in this play, when you read it in a comic, it's less glaring than when you see it spoken. And Chester Brown has more of a like it seems like a more human voice a little bit. And again, this is because this dialogue seems a little Randian and that it's a little stiff. Mm-hmm. I didn't, again, I didn't think that these sections were bad because this was actually the most fruitful section of the debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, he was still, Dak was obviously there as a character to laugh at, but he was a character who had, who, in the play's logic, one, he had a lot of time, and two, is a character who had, in what it was, in my opinion, 
an explicable series of fallacies. Gotcha. A straw man, but a straw man made of sturdier stuff than, say, the policeman at the end, who is played by um, Jamie Ives, who also plays uh, Richard's boss. Um, his his uh, uh, performances through this veer in terms of delivery between uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Ronald Reagan and Mr. Burns. <laughs> and it, when he shows up, as at, in the end, he's playing Agent Smith. That's yeah, it, from the okay. Matrix. And there is a Matrix poster in this, by the way. Just okay. To, just to make sure yeah. that they know the government's controlling our minds, ETD. Well, yeah, and the the thing about that is that this character gives um, – there is a confrontation in the end. The ending is, of course, a downer ending. I don't, I don't want to spoil it. The thing that I would say about this is that if this was written 30 years ago, it would be – of its time, if it, maybe 40 years ago, it would have been of its time regarding the character setup. It would have been amateurish but explicable regarding the character execution, and it would have been ahead of its time in concept. And that's what this is now. This is of its time in concept, behind the time in character in character uh, design, and severely behind the time in character execution. Because the characters in this don't are, – are just – they're all one-note characters. Nina is a party girl who has a lot of sex and thinks Richard is hot in concept. That's, that's, her, that's what she does throughout. Right. Faith is – his girlfriend's name's Faith and ironically loses Faith in him for not inexplicable reasons. Uh, Dak is constantly working on this weird so, sort of semi-Freudian libertarianism. And his his boss is always risk averse. His boss is basically the middle of the road guys in, e- in the middle of the road semi semi antagonist in every Anne Rand book, and so <laughs> forth and so on. It, it, it's pretty cookie cutter. Got it. And because Richard's a Mary Sue, he ends up being kind of cookie cutter as well because he just ends up being the exponent of these points. Um, now I. I, I, I do want to say that there is – again, I'm grading this on a curve. I'm probably being – because I, I don't think you can not have principles in it. If your principles speak to this, they're going to affect what you write. Mm. And, I, underst- and I, I, I understand that. I think that there's a certain debt to do it subtly unless it's political. And there are some people like me who think less of things that are explicitly political because I think you can do them more easily. That said – for example, I've been listening to a lot of Doug Stanhope recently, and that man's a comic genius who uses a lot of libertarian politics in it. And the the thing that I, I realize about that is that there's – in something like comedy, there's a relationship to authenticity. And that is, I'd say, similar in – that's semi-similar in music, but by the time you get to something like theater, which mm-hmm. is a, a huge, which is a larger construct, which has to owe to this sort of thing, you have to, I'd say now, especially because theater as a medium is really losing traction or has lost traction. I don't think so. I don't think theater as a medium has lost traction. Really? I think theater as a medium has always uh, been there. It's just like, you know, with social media, it's like easier to talk about TV and it's easier to talk about movies than it's, than it's to talk about theater, which is the reason why you don't really see – because they're like, oh, don't take pictures during theater, right? 
and you can't really take a picture during a movie or whatever. But you know, people do like screen caps or they do well, yeah. whatever, right? And you can you can there's digital copies of there's those digital copies and everything. Digital that, copies of film stage yeah, plays look sad. That's right, right? DVDs and whatnot. Whereas with theater, you have to be there as like a live experience. So I I don't think theater is dead. I don't think it's going to be dying out. I think people like that live experience part a lot. If there's no way to it just, discuss it, just it, doesn't, though. it just doesn't appear to be on, like, you know, the interwebs. Because harder to, yeah, you know, do that. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if I spend too much time online, like, just to get my information. Because I understand that there are some things kind of like theater. There's only so far that discourse goes. And when you lose the language for something, you start to lose the concept. Mm-hmm. Like this, what said they mention Orwell in this? Because, of course, they do. Um Actually a valid point, in my opinion. Anyway, so if people want to check out Cashless, maybe they're like, hey, you know what? That I kind of want to see what it's about. I want to see what Nina's about or Faith. Or, it would be you know, interesting. It, this is, I, I would say this. I found this interesting. Yeah. I found this interesting because interesting. I, 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 I disagree with the points at hand. That's fine. But I, I, it's, they're within their rights. They're reasoned. The arguments in here are, are I would say, coherent and... I disagree with them, but I, I wasn't offended by them. And one thing I was especially grateful for to an incredible degree is they did not once mention the word political correctness because I cannot – that is an imaginary enemy if you've ever seen one. Like, I, I feel like when people go like, ah, political correctness, they're just annoyed that people call them out on their shit. Sorry. Well, like, this is the thing. I've been going to UBC for three years. This is supposed to be one of the hotbeds of political correctness in the, the the continent, I'm a I'm a straight white guy who has a radio show, and as you know, has made many of blunder many blunders on air. I have never once been told to shut up. Never once I have been correct. I have been told about this impact largely. Jake, did you think that one through? And when I look back on it, a lot of the time, no. A couple times, yeah, I thought that <laughs> one through, and that's my opinion. Okay, it stands. I have mm-hmm. never been troubled by that. And I know this is a personal anecdote, yeah. but this is a fairly visible one. And I'm not sure if that's out of indifference to what I'm doing, which when you think about it, honestly, I mean, is anybody listening? You, you can call in. You know that we've given away about $50 worth of free tickets. Anyway. But, but I, I have never experienced that. So to me, it seems like an imaginary enemy. And this play... Because it is about the fiscal side of it, because it is, in my in my opinion, about an issue that is rather serious. And they mentioned the gold standard, which I think is a relevant issue. And if we want to talk economics, that's a different thing. But, yeah, it's running at the Havana. If you want to take in a meal and a drink, the Havana is still a great restaurant. Mm-hmm. And and you want to have it, – it, this would honestly be a decent payday show if you're feeling up to it. Go see it with someone you can talk to. Have a meal. Have a drink. They use Havana Club 3 in the well and 100% Agave Kiervo. They've got a, they've got a great bar. So Anyway, go check it out. When's it running until? Um, A date. Some, oh, the, to the 5th. To so, the 5th. So get on that. Yeah, three more days. All right, we'll be back with a few more me- Hub Cycling is hosting Bike to Shop Days. On June 22nd to June 24th, come out and get advice on the gear and techniques that allow you to easily use your bike for shopping trips. There will be route maps for shopping, celebration stations, which have info, snacks, and free bike tune-ups, discounts at local shops around Metro Vancouver, a passport challenge where participants collect stamps at celebration stations to win prizes, guided rides, and riding to local stores to show support. Check out bikehub.ca for more information. 
If you appreciate future bass, grime, footwork, dubstep, halftime, trap, sexy bassy dance music, then join us on Friday, May 13th at the Imperial with international talent Thelum and Aztec, plus locals Tal Mala, Michael Red, and Barley. Search The Deeps on Facebook for details. Welcome back to the Arts Report. It's me, Ashley. And I'm Jake. And I'm Eliana. What guest? Hey! <laughs> You're listening to the Arts Report, CATR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Muskegon territory in Vancouver. And guess what? What? <laughs> Thank you. We're going a little bit over. Ooh, get to hear a little bit more arts-related news Woo! and basically our opinions. What? Now, I, I do want to say this. We're, we're, we're currently launching a trial segment um, tentatively called... Asa, ask a smart Alec, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you can uh, pose a question to us on the show. That's right. And we'll try to answer it. Now, we're going to see about putting up a thing on our Facebook page for you to ask a question there. Yep. Um, and we'll handle it as it will towards the end of the shows that we budgeted so far. That's right. And again, if you're looking to find us, we are the Arts Report, CATR 101.9 FM. If you write that, it will show up. It will show up. Don't say it didn't show up. It will show up. Anyway, let's get into a little bit more reviews. I want to talk about Vancouver Theater Sports. I saw uh, Murder on the Improv Express. Yeah, I can see the poster there with it. It looks like Martin. It was Martin Freeman looking dude. I, I don't know. If <laughs> that's, that's actually um, he's actually a professor here at UBC. He teaches the improv uh, course, Professor Alan Morrison, and he was the host of the show because what you do is you have a host. And, oh, excuse me, what? Is he taking his work home with him, or? Does he take his work home? I bet. Yeah, I, I bet. He has a he has a fun job. He gets to teach improv and then do improv. Hmm. I'm just glad to see the Thomas, like, engine face yeah, on with, it. Yeah, with the little mustache. Beautiful. I know. But, basically, he plays host to the cast of the show, uh, which changes on the day that you go, just so people know. And everybody in the cast, basically, it's an improv show, so they throw like okay this person is that person this person is that person the main host never changes he plays a french detective and the cast we have C. Auguste Dupin clearly very very french Raymond all right Raymond means really that's all I know okay <laughs> so the people that were uh that we improvised we had a collector of dead flies so he was really into fly collecting Renfield another person um they were a uh, they were a circus duo, and one had a Russian accent. Another lady had a German accent. They were brother and sister, and then they were uh, knife jugglers. And then one got mauled by a tiger. Oh, no. no. Also, it makes sense why they'd have different accents. How would you tell them apart? <laughs> and uh, another lady was a, um, she was like a socialist, you know, 1920s New York. We talk like this, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So that's how she talked all the time. It was great. I loved it so much. And uh, one person was a, um, he was a, he was a businessman and his business was in suspenders. And the last lady, her, she had like, a, she had six ex-husbands who all died. And her main interest was taxidermy. Ooh. <laughs> Under mysterious uh, circumstances? circumstances? Oh, no, I know. Not mysterious You know, a couple of heart attacks, a poisoning, mm-hmm. a bathtub electrocution. Could have happened to anyone. Who knows? Exactly. But the uh, fun part about this um, 
mystery is that the person who dies is someone they pick randomly from the audience. Oh. So I really wanted to, you know, be like, oh, hey, pick me. But I was with Andy, and Andy hates that kind of shit. I just Aww. really hope the host was like, gay, you feel lucky, do you, punk? Just Any- looking over the audience. Anyway, they actually uh, pulled this guy, and he was an actor from Colorado. And they're like, oh, an actor from Colorado. Jackpot. And- and everybody just like riff on that because it's all improvised. The only thing that I don't think was improvised is how they uh, devise the actual murder because the person dies, right? And then they were like, okay, but he wasn't actually an actor from Colorado. He was actually a jewelry maker from this little town. And he put poison in, he actually spilled poison in the water supply that burned people's skin off. And there was a fire. And everybody here was affected by it. So everybody here is part of the murder case. (laughs) I know, like, all inexplicably, they're part of the murder case. I bet that actor was really good at playing dead because they were an actor. (laughs) Yeah, it it was really funny. They even said that. So they're like, oh, he's such a good actor. Maybe he's faking it. Maybe he's not really dead. <laughs> I know. You get a few kicks, you know, mm-hmm. the meat thermometer. You know, we'll see. The actual mystery part, though, is when the host leaves the room, he does a game called an endowment scene, a classic improv game in which a character leaves the set and has to work out the clues when he or she reappears based on what the people say to him or her. So the... Uh, other characters actually gave out clues to the audience saying like, oh, hey, by the way, actually, you know, my money that I got, I got it from like a plumbing enterprise or we're not actually Russian or German. We're <laughs> Japanese. Like, you know, that kind of. As happens occasionally. As happens occasionally. So the uh, host, the detective doesn't know that, but we, the audience, knows that. The main thing that, you know, we want to make sure is don't yell it out to the detective. Be like, oh, yeah, that guy's Japanese, though. Like, don't do it. So basically, the audience has to cue them by going, ooh, or ah, when the other cast member drops a line that hints at it, going like, oh, yeah, I love those apples, especially Fuji apples. And then we all go, ooh, Fuji, Japanese apples, ooh. Sounds like a game of hot and cold. It is, it is. We were actually really surprised. Andy was like, how did he get all of those right? I would never have guessed. These, these clues are just too subtle. They can't even notice it dropping. It's just like a crumb that comes off of your jacket or something. Super subtle. You really got to be in the flow of it. You yeah. Know, you got to be. But it was really fun. Also really packed. I wouldn't have expected. The entire um, seating gallery area, completely full. Completely full. Oh, wow. Yeah, really popular. So people want to go see it. It continues until May 25th. I do recommend it. It's really fun, especially if you have the right crowd. Improv games are always like, you need the right crowd. Some people are trying to ruin the game by like, you know, yelling out like, iPhone or whatever, like randomly. I know. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Like, if they like your idea, they'll take it, okay? If they didn't take it, that means your idea is not good. <laughs> Sorry. You gotta... Are they Are they just in here and it's like, whatever? Oh, you're so nice. No, some of these ideas are bad. I was like, stop. <laughs> stop. You're ruining the game. Just yelling them out. I remember I was in an improv show once, and mm-hmm. I've heard an almost exactly similar story about the painter Thomas Kincaid, but someone in the improv show was yelling out, God, peace! For the entire thing. <laughs> and, and, and was it quiet just like that afterwards? That was a startling reenactment of the response. Like, just polite <laughs> silence. And then one guy in the back who sounded like the, the acne clerk from The Simpsons, like, God, peace. Yeah. God, he did it like three times. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, after the second cod piece, mm-hmm. he must have been like, 
Should I? Should I keep going? Okay, one more. God, peace. Oh, maybe, maybe my voice won't break this to God, peace. No. Yeah, just oh, would not do it, right? I'm gonna go feel shame now. <laughs> my family gets in the same shame circle every Saturday night. But I feel that because Wait, that's Charles Gateau. <laughs> oh no. But I feel that because it's very like anonymous, and there's so many people in the crowd. When you when you're really into it and you yell out and they t- take your suggestion, it really feels really good. Oh, yeah. People are like, oh, it's super fun. You feel validated. You're like, like yay. They like my idea. It's so much more better than iPhone. <laughs> that kind of feeling. The heckling principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, Jake, what did you see? Recently? Yeah. So recently I saw uh, me and you at the arts club. Well, that's not, not too- Yeah, we were at the arts club. Uh-huh. Okay. For Murder on the Orient Express? No, no, no. no. It's a joke because you had me and you at the arts club. Because, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good frontier humor, yeah. Thanks, guys. Validation. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, what was it about? So Me and You is about um, sibling rivalry in, in a double-edged comedy is what it's advertised ah, as. It is a two-actor play. Um, and it, it's a very simple play in execution. So there are two characters, Liz, played by Patty Allen, and Lou, mm-hmm. played by Lewis Anderson. And it traces them from their teenage years, from the, really oh, their wait. girlhood, too. Wait, I think I, I think I actually know the play you're talking about. I saw a, um, I, I saw the, um, like, the reading version of it before it becomes a play. You know, they have, like, that prototype. Yeah, yeah. Like Melody Anderson wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And she oh, designed no. the masks, too. Yeah, they have masks. Oh, my I God. Was actually, I was actually not thrilled about the masks because they didn't change them. Yeah, they didn't change them. But they kind of look a weirdly grotesque in a way, right? They are, yeah. yeah but like, it's kind of cool. I think part of it was to obfuscate the, the age of the actors so that yeah. they could be all ages. But I, I, thought, I felt like that was mispotential. Like with different, masks. with different like masks. Yeah, and I like masks, so mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a little bit of missed potential. Um, the, the thing about this, what I mostly have to say about this, this is on until um, when is it on? Until I think May sixth, mm-hmm. so at the Gold Corp, um, and it is a it's, so it's a two actor play. I'll actually kind of like Top Dog Underdog was mm-hmm. uh, in, in really no other respect. I would say. Um, this was it was interesting in that this is basically an Oscar movie. Yeah. Uh, like if if you took this idea and made it into a movie and starred where, Meryl Streep in it, of course. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, you could, like to quote the one guy from Modern Family, you can get Meryl Streep to play Batman. It would be the right choice. Yeah. I believe that. Um, this this is really. Oh, by the way, the second Mamma Mia movie's coming out. Yeah, I know. I heard about that too. <laughs> Where are they gonna go? Just to go off topic, the Mamma Mia. I want to get back to that one because we might be reviewing the Arts Club's Mamma Mia, but um. But let's talk about me and you. Yeah. So. How are you? Me and you. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna keep milking that one, eh? Says yeah, the guy but who's it... never overused a joke ever. It... <laughs> um, Wait, what is it about? Because yeah. I don't know. So it. if they're coming of age, they from their girlhood to. Basically until the death of mm-hmm. Lou, and, and it's it's actually a really sweet story, and you can see how things in their childhood actually come back when they're adults, and the way that they remember things that happened in their past, and the way that they've changed. It's a really kind of like I wouldn't say a snapshot of their life, but just like their life starting from birth to death. It's really moving uh, piece, but you have to be like open for like the melodrama to kick in if yeah. you're like oh boy my melodrama is at like a high <laughs> right now i can't take any more mellow nor drama then you're gonna be like oh no what's gonna happen this time kind of feeling but 
when you kind of go into and you're like, I'm really invested in how these girls like change and grow into, you know, women and how they handle like, you know, maybe if they want to like motherhood, if they don't want to, then not motherhood. What's happening? Yeah, and it, it, it deals with that. Like, there's yeah. parenthood is a huge theme. Of course. And about connectivity and about sort of how and about how family stays together. Uh, divorce and infidelity, also a huge theme. Uh, and this, in and of itself, was um, it was interesting to me mm-hmm. uh, because that, that makes a good story, usually. You know, you know, you know, you know, pain makes for good humor a lot of the time. Uh, I was actually, I actually thought that could have been handled a little... Like I, I did like how they handled it in that it seemed generational. Yeah. Like their the the their parents' relationship is unhappy, fraught with infidelity. So both of their relationships are sort of because that does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Like that's you know to 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 quote a hackneyed phrase, the sins of the fathers. Um, and I I like how they did that. I just thought it was a very deadpan comparison. Uh, and I was, I'm not really sure how that could have been sort of, um, for you, it didn't work. It's not that it didn't work. It's just that I thought, um, the presentation was a little flat. Like I could kind of see that it was after it Mm happened, after it happened to one of them, I knew it was going to happen to the other. Mm -hmm. I put it to you that way. And because a lot of it is about drawing those parallels. Right. Between the two sisters, even though they're different, there's mm-hmm. things that they share. Yeah. Like the masks, like I think the masks really are the best word for it because uh, the masks are fine on their own. They mm-hmm. could have they could have used a different way to tell it. Like, honestly, it was it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Like in the first five minutes, I could tell what the tone was going to be almost exactly. Mm-hmm. So did you like it? I didn't dislike it. I would <laughs> not recommend it. Um the thing I would say about it is that um, being other than it was, it would be less than pleasant. Other than perhaps being more of what it was. How was the staging? For me, because the reading was very uh, bare, right? Just the reading. I thought that was actually more effective because it kind of reduced the layers between the audience and the actor and the character almost. I wouldn't say so the it, staging was bad. Mm-hmm. Um, How was the staging? I know there was, like, for me, there was two beds, and then there was, like, a curtain thing, curtain rail. What, the, what am I doing? There are these rows of cabinets on either side of the stage okay. where they pull things out of. And ah, they pull the beds out of the wall. There's a bathroom at one point. That was actually a good bit of staging. And mm-hmm. um, more, more than I expected. Yeah. It was actually an interesting gimmick, I thought. They climb on it. Um... It was fairly minimal, though, in yeah. that that was much the only thing. Uh, I, I do want to say this. As it, with any piece that advances through the periods, you do get to see sort of the, the fashions of it. And my good God, like the, 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 the 69 bit with the hippie fashion, God, that looks atrocious. Like it was, <laughs> it was one of the things where you know it's a good period piece when they have the bad bits of fashion that don't yeah. get removed <laughs> by nostalgia. Bless. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm like that. That is an awful outfit. We, darling. we, oh we didn't, <laughs> darling. We didn't see too much of that. So it's awesome to see how they uh, changed it up from the reading to the staging. And if people are interested, it is a very, I would say, um, good one to maybe think about your siblings if you're like feeling a little like you know what I want to think about my brother or sister or you know cousin today. <laughs> you know, if your cousin's your brother or sister, not in like that. Not wait, literally. I mean, like you know. Em- empathetically, yeah. <laughs> not, not literally. Your cousins, your brother. Anyway, but if you want to go see it, go go check out me and you. Yep, it's at the Gold Corp until the sixth. Yeah, so. it's nice, loving, heartfelt Oscar winner. Drop in, take a look. All right, 
Um, for me, I actually went to see the uh, Vancouver Art Gallery because they were doing the final hurrah. I wanted to go see it super bad. I was like, oh, no, I too much stuff happening between February. Good thing. It's still open until May 6th. You're wondering, what am I talking about? Takashi Murakami's The Octopus Eats His Own Leg. Ileana. I've been wanting to see that ever because one of my friends went to go see it and she loved it and I also saw a lot of him in like an art history class I did yeah so. cool then we have things to talk about and Jake <laughs> you saw it too I saw it too a little bit ago uh, mm-hmm. so I actually didn't know anything about Takashi Murakami I was like is this the guy who wrote Norwegian Wood cool no that's Haruki Murakami <laughs> oh my god well no I can't read this joke to you but yeah mm-hmm. so I I didn't know he did the graduation cover art which yeah, is yeah with Kanye that... West he worked in collaboration with Kanye he also yeah. worked in collaboration vans. He works in collaboration with a lot of like pop culture related stuff and pop art. There was some interesting stuff in there. There was the giant Oni statues. Yeah, Red Oni and uh, Blue, Blue Oni. Oni. Yeah. That's right. Um, Aoi Oni and Aka Oni. They're the uh, they're the two Onis on Oni Island in the Legend of Momotaro or the Peach Boy. So Momotaro has to defeat these two Onis and. It's very interesting. Red's really angry and violent, and blue's really calm and collected, right? Yeah, blue's like the chill one. The red is the more like emotional one. So when people kind of go like, "Oh, they're a red oni, blue oni pair," it means like that kind of duo. But yeah, um, so do you guys know what the octopus eats its own leg? Like the actual title, do you know what it's about? I do not. That's okay. Nope. Well, the octopus eats its own leg is actually Murakami's own kind of. Uh, it's a Japanese philosophy uh, philosophy that he took. Um, to heart as well but basically the octopus in order to survive will sometimes eat its own leg so it's like self-sacrifice so that you are more you know you can do what you need to so you can live and do something else in the future well i mean i I do want to say this an octopus has eight limbs and they all do the same thing it's not like 127 hours if he's like 127 hours would be a very different movie if he was a Hindu god, is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost definitely. And it's like, oh, I got to get rid of one arm. Well, okay. Uh, here we go. But let's talk about uh, the octopus eats the leg. Let's talk about the um, the exhibit. And you should definitely go. Anyone else, if they want to go, go check it out. It is until the sixth. I would have told you guys maybe last week to go check it out because Tuesdays are actually like pay what you can. It's donate. Uh, yeah. Donation. So if you're ever wondering in the future, hey, let's go check out the exhibit. But I don't have a lot of cash. Eh. Then, you know, think about coming in on Tuesdays. Oh, also, careful when you're coming in on Tuesdays. I waited in line to go yes. into the Vancouver Art Gallery. <laughs> Not even joking. Yeah, I, it will stretch around the building. That's right. I was at the other side of the building where the skateboarders and pot smokers are. And it changes. That's all of the area around the building. <laughs> they love those. It's on top stairs. of Robson Square. The only group you're missing there is like the 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 group of people who think they're in Step Up Revolution. Yeah. No. No. I'm not even. Yeah. You're right. But this time we had yoga, so we weren't. Da- there weren't people dancing. There were people doing yoga near the uh, Vancouver Art Gallery. Very peaceful. Very. Yoga's nice. the new dancing. Oh boy! I gotta get in with the times. Well, let's talk about Murakami's work. So the main picture that they uh, advertise all the time is this huge image called Tantan Buking or Gerotan. We're going to be able to describe. We can't. You can try to describe it. It's. It was made in 2002, and basically, it's this colorful supernova, crazy mouse-looking icon, like iconography with like explosions and drool and stuff happening. It looks like someone gave H.P. Lovecraft psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah, basically, it looks both friendly and colorful, and yet really haunting and jarring all at once. 
Yeah, it, like, takes those kind of, like, cheerful and, like, kind of those, like, shapes of, like, really round shapes. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like a very, like, childish in a way. Yeah. And then it just kind of, like, through the use of some of its colors, I guess, or the repetitiveness of it. Yeah. So we're looking at a picture of the artist right now. <laughs> and he has a octopus like hat thing. Yeah, that, that, I'm not looking at his hat. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at his hat. He's wearing what appears to be a kilt and a suit jacket. It looks like he's wearing a Feature. kimono, actually. Is it a kimono? Yeah, but, oh, okay. but he has a suit jacket on top, so you can't tell it's a kimono. Okay. And it's it uses the same shades of sort of like maybe a burgundy, uh, sort of navy blue, and... Uh, I don't know, like a, a, a almost a, a tangerineish color, mm-hmm. a little far away here. Yeah, the main the main thing that I really like about his art, and then you can change, you can see the change in his art, is that his earlier works, he was really inspired by this uh, one artist called Anselm uh, Kiefer, a German neo-expressionist painter, who yeah. uses non-paint in his painted uh, pieces. So he made, we saw the way that his art evolved. He made something called a nuclear power picture in which there are three shadowy figures that are standing in front of cooling towers, nuclear cooling towers, pumping out a lot of smoke. And it's made with straw, cardboard, silver, and gold pigment. So uh, it also speaks a lot about Murakami's kind of, uh, and Japan's relationship with the nuclear age. As you know, uh, Japan was- Yeah, Japan was, you know, one of the places hit with two atomic bombs. And well, one of yeah. the only two one of the only two places been hit with. Well, actually, I think that's the only use of the atomic They're bomb. They're the only use. Because Sarabamba right. was exploded on Russian territory. Yeah. So. And the other ones were like Bikini, like, what's it? Bikini Atoll. Bikini Atoll, that's right. And that was only a testing. Yeah, and that, that's where SpongeBob lives. I mean, that explains why the characters of SpongeBob are ambulatory. They're all radioactive. <laughs> but mainly. <laughs> Murakami's work is very colorful, but also harbors like um, an unsettling quality. There's one image I really liked called "Flowers, Flowers, Flowers." It's and you can see it right here. It's basically mushrooms. A wall of flowers with like a happy face in weird pop color, you know, um, in weird pop color. And I actually took a photo so you guys can see me here. I wanted to show you guys, and I took it with my friends, and we all did the happy flower face. It's so cute. Thanks. It's, it's like a huge wall that goes all the way across. Yeah, it is. And the installations are very, um, when you walk into it, you feel like you're in, like, the first, like, movie, like, of Digimon. You know, when they, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, know Digimon, you know. the first movie. Of course. That's well, right. Is that the one with the virus? Yeah, that's the one with the virus. Yeah, okay, I remember And they totally that ripped one. it off in Summer Wars, which is also a good movie. I don't remember that. Summer Wars is animation at, like, when they're in um, Oz. Summer Wars is, like, no, no. Summer Wars is when they're, like, in, like, another video game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, is it called Oz? I think it's called Oz, but it kind of reminds me of... Like, I think they t- took a lot of inspiration from him. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of Oz's look is kind of, like, similar to the way that he... Yeah, Murakami. Yeah. Yeah. And his main character, which is the crazy mouse-looking guy right here, Mr. Dob, is featured a lot in his uh, kind of, like, pop iconography kind of work. It? It's it? really, really uh, colorful and also scary. Because the flower reminds me of, like, Undertale's, like, Flowey. I don't know if you know Undertale, Flowey. Yes, I do. It really reminds me of Flowey, like really kind of like this like happiness that's like sinister it, and like 
kind of artificial because the color is so vibrant that it has to feel fake. Yeah, it's it, it does have that quality of like it, the the flowers just being a little bit too happy. Yeah, too to happy. Be natural. Yeah, and that's what I I would feel um, is with Murakami's work. Uh, he kind of creates these like um, really like happy but unnaturally happy pieces that make me think a lot. To be honest, they're they're fascinating to look at. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing; they're they're really rich and amazing with the colors and all. And I like that. Yeah, he has like a a a, a really uh, unique patterny style too. So some yeah. images and some symbols that he uses repeat themselves often. For example, the octopus leg, mm-hmm. um, he uses it a lot in his pieces. He uses the character Mr. Dob a lot, and he uses the happy flower a lot in a lot of his work. And the interesting thing is all the lines in this are really clean. Like, there's colors That's right. blending, but there's no blurring. Uh, he's actually, it's uh, Murakami's background. He received a PhD in Nihonga, a traditional style of Japanese painting that's created with specific techniques and materials. And my friends and I, uh, who went to go see it yesterday, one of my friends, he's from Emily Carr. He's a illustrator designer. He says like the really clean style. Uh, he uh, Murakami used a lot of vector, so he would make the uh, creation in the computer and then have it like printed to be exact lines. Or he will draw the really thick lines himself in a very ukiyo-e style. Hmm. I don't know who that is. Ukiyo-e is kind of like a traditional Japanese style that has very uh, expressive like line work. At this point, my awareness of Japanese art is the Great Wave of Kanagawa, The Fisherman's Wife, This Guy, and Junji Ito. <laughs> That's about the size of it. Junji mm-hmm. Ito is the bomb, and I could talk a lot about his line work <laughs> if yeah, ever yeah, prompted. Um... Oh, actually, a funny thing. Murakami, I think there was a... I think he... He uh, worked with Battle Royale. Is it called Battle Royale? Yeah. Did he on the, on the movie with, with, with no, Takeshi? No, the, 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 I think the ori- I think he worked on, the, it's a manga series, a right? manga series. Yes, oh, it was. Okay. I think there was yeah, like was. some like like influence or collaboration or something happening there. And he also he worked with like the um, the guy who made Osumatsu-kun. Oh my gosh. Oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or he thought he, this guy's like, oh, he's like the Andy Warhol of like Japan. Oh uh, yeah, that I saw Fujia that Akatsuka. Fujio Akatsuka, that's his name. Too. He made us ah. The Andy Warhol of Japan. Oh. Mm-hmm. I also saw another uh, exhibit. There was uh, the. Uh, it was okay. Like if you. Eh. Was that Bombhead? No, Bombhead was Bombhead was interesting. But cultivating a uh, cultivating journey, the Herman Levy legacy, and living, building, thinking, art, and expressionism. They were like. You know, when you think, like, I'm going to go to the art gallery, you see those. They're very nice, but, like, it didn't really inspire me as much as the um, Murakami and Bombhead ones. But I think it's because they were more, like, fine art, like, you know, paintings on walls. And you go, huh, and not really installations. And I think I'm more akin to installations because mm. I like to actually go into the space and live it. Like, when you saw the red, oni, blue, and you weren't you so, like, you know, like, wow, they're so huge. They're terrifying. Didn't you feel like Momotaro? Like uh, a little boy fighting those huge demons. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was that was a feeling. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's something really uh, cool and surreal about being surrounded by giant pieces of art. I think, and I think that's what I really got most from the um, octopus eats his own leg. You really feel like, oh my god, I'm in like you know summer wars or you know something. You feel like you're transported to a different, colorful but scary world, and. When that's how I'm gonna pull into Bombhead because Bombhead. This is until June 17th. Speaking of relationships to nuclear power, that's right. It's curated by uh, John O'Brien, and interestingly, he's professor emeritus of art history, visual art, and theory at UBC. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So Bombhead combines the atomic ephemera with artwork drawn primarily from the Vancouver Art Gallery's collection. But the main interesting thing I want to talk about is the uh, the stuff that they have in collection. So they had, like, confidential files of, like, uh, soldiers who were at, like, bikini and, like, their little badges and, like, the actual, like, photographs they took and whatnot. And they had, like, these, like, really old school, like, booklets like pamphlets like it was like hey the atomic bomb and you like that kind of thing oh, like wow. i'm not even joking it really had the and you thing pointing right at the reader or like oh our friend the atom and it's like all set in like the 19th 19- with vault boy on the front with the <laughs> <laughs> just the thumbs up like right. remain not- calm yeah it's like very cold war like kind of like yeah, fake like- cheer uppy kind of thing very fallout so i don't so i don't game but so my 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 roommate a couple years ago Andy he was a big gamer and he played fallout and it was yeah. very interesting cuz the soundtrack is way up my alley but the whole vault boy imagery because there's almost the videos on YouTube are just a picture of the vault boy, like for ain't that a kick in the head and things like that. Mm. And that was one of the things where, um, yeah, that is alarmingly accurate to the sentiment of Cold War America, which was a mixture of like ice water on your spine panic and we're okay. Everything's fine. Watch and, TV. And it's especially interesting because the vault boy kind of thumbs up is also like, hey, it's everything's going to be okay. But it was also that, you would have if the nuclear bomb went off. You putting it your thumb out was to see how close it would be to you to Ooh. see if you were running o- had to run yeah, away. Yeah, that's, that's right. interesting. So it's 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 like I really like that I play Fallout a lot. Yeah. So uh, it was that kind of like double imagery to it is like very fascinating. You have a favorite song from a soundtrack? Just out of curiosity. Uh I do not because <laughs> I do not listen to the soundtrack. That's okay. They got heartaches by the number. Uh, which is one of my grandfather's favorite songs. That's a great one. But speaking of uh, music and what and um, visual and video and whatnot, there was one video that really captured Bombhead, and I think that's what you really need to see. The other images are okay, but the, there's one video called Crossroads by Bruce Connor. It's oh, a 36-minute yeah. video created from declassified U.S. National Archive footage from the first underwater atomic bomb test on Bikini Atoll, as we talked about. Yep in the South Pacific on July 25th, 1946. So it had a huge, like, impact, like, almost, like, the same equivalent of uh, 21,000 tons of TNT. So it's, like, crazy. Somebody even said it was the example of the nuclear sublime, the perfect description of its destruction, well, I would I mean, say. I, I don't know if this was then or at Alamogordo, but Oppenheimer, you know, quoted the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. I am become death, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the video is actually comprised of the one blast, but seen from 15 different angles and different heights. So you can see it from really low, from really high up, from like a little Mm -hmm. bit farther away, from really close up, not too close that you die, obviously. And it uh, created a column of water that rose to a height of 1.6 kilometers up. So it just boom and the water went whoosh. The main thing that that we saw is we kind of walked in during the half part, and this is where I'm talking about like the weird, like cheery music because they're we'll meet again. You're a lid. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, there's Watch Dr. they have like a very different soundtrack. So there's one where there's a live sound generated by the action in the video, so you can hear the boom, and it's really like scary. There's another part where they have like a male voice reciting a countdown as well as explosions and cascading water, which all happen in sync with the visual movement. But these are all added. 
that's all good and all, but honestly, couldn't they just put in Final Countdown by Europe? <laughs> no, instead, <laughs> they had this like additional soundtrack, which was made on a Moog synthesizer by Patrick Gleason, and it's like dun 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 dun. dun. That's literally the song on a repeat. It's very cheery and happy as the bomb is exploding, and that's what. You guys, you know, what I thought was very fallouty, And also, because of the cheery music, it makes it even more ominous. Because before, yeah. you're totally engrossed in what you're seeing. Because the countdown's happening. the You hear the explosion happening. You're lost in the action. But when you have that distancing effect made by the synthesizer, you finally pull yourself out of the explosion. And you can actually really not marvel at it. It's like, wow, it's so huge and big. But go, wow, this kills a lot of people. Holy shit. Shoot, that's scary. Interesting bit of trivia about this. Mm -hmm. After Oppenheimer was involved in the atomic bomb, he was blacklisted in the 50s by the McCarthy government. Mm -hmm. After that, there was a man named Frederick Seitz who was a physicist there. And that man, throughout the years, has become a professional... Well, he's dead now. I'm not going to say that's a good thing or a bad thing. But... He became a professional anti-scientist. He's worked for tobacco. He worked for tobacco companies. He worked for groups fighting acid. He worked for groups fighting against realizations of acid rain and global warming. And he worked in favor of the Strategic Defense Initiative, which is why at this point there are enough nuclear weapons to kill the entire planet about twenty times over. It mm. prepared for active use. And this was a man who saw these weapons developed by whose agency it was created, and he saw this ability, and then. His reaction was to look at the Reagan White House, where you have a semi-acephalic former actor in the early stages of dementia running the country and say, you know what we need? We need more instruments of the apocalypse. Let's do that. That will deter the expansion of the Russians, a nation at that point, about the approximate equivalent threat, about as threatening and as capable as a thalidomide baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, I thought that's a small bit of trivia yeah, I think, about the fate of the atomic. But a, I think a, a, you hit a point. Science. You hit a point. Uh, one thing I really wanted is I wanted more of that also in Bombhead because they have all these cool art, but they didn't really have the impact of what you would feel in the actual uh, war. Anyway, that was that's kind of a dark way to end the show. But there's a lot of cool stuff to we do. do. This a lot. We end the show on a horrifically dark note. But, but it's kind of like relevant. It I is relevant, especially times. in our age. Yeah. Well, it's actually shockingly, if you look up the legacy of Fred Seats, it is a, a and men like Frederick Singer and their associates. There's actually a great book on it called Merchants of Doubt. It is mm-hmm. downright horrifying. But that is not within our purview. No, no. <laughs> However, we do have a history of beating on dead people, so you know. Anyway, if people have their own thoughts about it, they can always contact us. What's our cool new thing yeah. that we're doing? Uh, Asa, ask a smart Alec. That's right, and you can just Asa, but I don't know. I I, I like Asa. I like Asa that, too. That's a name. That's that's a guy's name, you know, like Asa Butterfield, which is interesting to me because I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I are shrugging. We're like, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I wouldn't use it. <laughs> but anyway, if people want to uh, tell us yeah. their thoughts, if they want us to talk on a topic, feel free. Yeah. Um, you can always add us at The Arts mm-hmm. Report. Uh, the post will be up on our Facebook later today. That's you right. You can send us a question. Um, if you want it to be a research question, personal question, whatever, send it to us. We'll handle it. We'll try and handle it however we can. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks for listening. My name is Ashley Park. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Eliana Sosa. Cheers.
right, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it wrong. I'm about to spit yeah, in this mic like <laughs> freestyle elfin, you know? Okay, okay. <clears throat> Wait, hold on. Does this make sense? <laughs> no, but cares. All right, let's go. <clears throat> Finally, we. <laughs> Gonna last. Hey. Victoria's pretty good, not bad festival, fountain, just back from France, Montreal. <laughs> what the f? It's a script. <laughs> I couldn't even. What? Victoria's pretty good, 